0: This is the word from Nehemiah chapter 2 verses 17 to 20. It says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in? How Jerusalem lies in ruins and with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Senniblatt the Horonite And Tobiah, the Ammonite servant and Geshem, the Arab heard of it. They jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? You're rebelling against the king. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right, or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Amen. There we go. Good to see you today. What a beautiful day it is and wonderful time of worship. I love singing hymns. They're the richest songs that we have that testify to the doctrines of God. I'm not saying that choruses don't. I'm just saying that hymns really focus in on, on the, with clarity on doctrine, and we need that. We need that. Today, we're going to be looking at a particular passage in Nehemiah, and uh, the focus of this passage is the divine providence of God and how God's divine providence works in life, in our lives, both individually as well as as a church, and so uh, take your Bible if you haven't already and turn to Nehemiah. We'll begin in chapter two, and we'll we'll uh, actually just uh, overview chapter three, and then we'll go to chapter four. So you've never in a sermon where it's verse by verse, you've never had me cover three chapters in once in one Sunday. Uh, yeah, that's exactly. Somebody said, I don't think you can do it, and they're right. Uh, We're going to actually skip chapter 3 because we'll explain why in a moment. Uh, But we're going to hit just the tail end of chapter 2 and hit the first part of chapter 4. And the emphasis of those three chapters is really uh, about God and his work in the people. We've said from day one as a fellowship that we are not here to create a vision and then ask God to bless it. That is not what Vero Bible Fellowship is based upon. Coming up with a plan, coming up with a vision, and then asking God to come alongside of us and help us fulfill the thing that we want to do for him. Our approach from day one has been, let's pray and let's sense what God is already doing and then let's join him. It's not about us coming up with vision, it's about coming to understand God's vision. So, there is a way that God has described in scripture to have church and what church is. And so, we just want to join him in what he says church is. And the same is true for any project that we take on, like uh, the purchase of a property. Thank you, Lord. How many of you are excited about? knowing that one day we'll have our own place to worship in. Amen. That's awesome. And nothing against, boy, the school's been so good to us, and we've tried to return that goodness back to them and giving nearly $30,000 for student scholarships and things like that. But this, this cafeteria for five years now has served as a chapelteria and it's served us well. Amen? Amen. Praise God. And uh, we get thanks for it. In fact, in January, we're going to celebrate big time the five years of Viral Bible Fellowship. It'll be a great study, great time together. We've we got ladies on a committee that are planning the whole thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. Hope you'll be part of it. But God is always behind doing his work in and through our lives. To the point that God even uses our failures our sinful behavior to bring about his providential plan. What I'm going to describe to you today through this story and then at the end give you several examples of how, just how sovereign your God is. I'm trying to help you understand that nothing in your life is chance. God uses everything. You look at a part of your life and you go, oh, I just cringe when I think about it. And you should. should. We should detest the sins that we've committed. We should hate sin the way the Lord hates sin. And if you've properly repented, then you've done that. Now you're not living out of the past, right? Thank you, Jesus. He gave us his righteousness. He's clothed us in righteousness. So now you're no longer a sinner. You're a saint. And praise God for that. But don't think for a second God didn't use those terrible years to do his work. Nothing, nothing is wasted by God. So in chapter 1 of Nehemiah, we, we're in, he, Nehemiah learns uh, that the morale of his brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem is really low. Basically, the opposition of the governors of that neighboring, of the neighboring provinces They've been successful in thwarting the Jews' attempt to reestablish Jerusalem as a distinctly uh, Jewish city because the walls are down. And so you've got these folks who live in the region who are all around Jerusalem, and they are the enemy. They're, they're, they're opposed to God. They're opposed to God's people. Now, they, they use a form of Judaism along with all the other religions that they believe in. Where did these people come from? Well, first it started with the uh, northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that began to marry people outside of the Jewish faith, which God at that time told them not to do. And then the Assyrians come in and take out the northern kingdom, and in place of rem- and in removing the Jews from their homeland, they bring in other people that have come under their, their uh, in empire. They bring those people in from other places. Well, that's the opposition that the Jews are having as they try to rebuild their lives coming out of 70 years of of being in in bondage in Babylon and Assyria, but mainly the Babylon captivity. And they're trying to get home to, to repair the walls and build the temple and all of that. Well, the first wave was successful. They actually began to work on things the second wave of jews that returned from exile they were working they built the temple got it done but here now nehemiah learns that there's still a lot of trouble because these people that live in the region are really pressing down on the jewish brothers and sisters and keeping them from being able to reclaim the city the walls are torn the gates are burned and 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 this burdens the heart of nehemiah So Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king of Persia, he begins to pray. And we talked about this. We spent a whole Sunday on that prayer. It was a worshipful prayer. We actually learned from that prayer and along with many other prayers, including the Lord's prayer, that there is a right way to pray. And part of the right, not that it's the only way to pray, we're not legalistic with this, but but there is a right way. And the right way is that we would begin prayer not with our checklist of needs. We begin prayer with worship of God. And that's what Nehemiah did. He, he remembered the greatness of his God. And so once he had the right picture of God, now he begins to look inside. Because now I see that God is awesome. God is great. God is holy. And I'm not. And he confesses sin and he confesses the sin of his people. And then now he's finally ready to share with the Lord his burden for the people back in Jerusalem. And the final outcome of that prayer was Father, give me me favor with the king as I speak to him about my homeland. And that's exactly what happens. His prayer was, Oh Lord, Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man who is the king. So even from the beginning of the book of Nehemiah, we see God's intervention. God is the influence behind all that's happening. In chapter 2, the opportunity to speak to the king presents itself because Of God's intervention and the king asked Nehemiah verse 4 chapter 2 what are you requesting and and look look at the response from Nehemiah before he spoke he says so I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king so listen he prayed while he was still standing there in front of the king that doesn't mean he got down on his knees and prayed in front of the king it means that he probably said a prayer under his lips father right now give me what I need to say to this king And then he said, if it pleases the king, and if if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Now this is interesting. Right there in that verse, he says, and if your servant has found favor in your sight. He's speaking to the king. If I found favor in your sight. Of course he's found favor in the sight of the king, because God's the one that made him the cupbearer at this period of time so that he can use this cupbearer to speak to the king to release his people to go back and to rebuild the city walls. All of it is God orchestrating, every bit of it. And so he's, he's simply all Nehemiah is, listen, Nehemiah was not a great man. Don't say that. People in this world are so quick to look for greatness in people. Nehemiah was an ordinary man who had extraordinary giftings from God. He was an ordinary man who believed in a great God, an extraordinary God, a supernatural God. God is the one who's pulling the strings here, not Nehemiah. Nehemiah is simply joining God in this effort. So, here's what I want to say to you, that when we're committed to carry out God's plans, we can expect things to start happening. This is pretty exciting. Not only does the king grant him permission to go back and take care of, you know, his homeland, but he says, I'm going to go ahead and open my forest to you. You take the wood that you need to rebuild the gates, and take the metal from the metal workers, and go ahead and take, if you will, some money, and then go ahead... And I'm going to provide soldiers to go back with you as you travel through the various provinces all the way back to Jerusalem. I want you to have safety as you travel. So my men are going to go with you. And I'm going to provide horses. All of this. Listen, this is a Persian king. This is a pagan king. But God is behind it. Amen? Do any of you doubt that God can move the heart of any person for his purposes on this earth? And what looks to be evil, and it is evil, in some leader, don't think that God's not aware of that. And don't think that God's not going to use that. In fact, oftentimes, he uses wicked people to bring discipline to his children. They are returning from a 70-year captivity to where God disciplined them for not following him. So when we're committed to God, we we carry out his plan. All of a sudden, things start happening. Why is that? Because where God guides, God provides. If you're doing something that you think is God's work, but there's no provision coming in, God's not providing for it at all, chances are it's not God's work. Or it is God's work. But what you thought that work was supposed to be is something totally different than what God thinks it ought to be. Explain that to William Carey, who was in India, a missionary, going there for one purpose to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And while he's in India, for seven years as a minister of the gospel, proclaiming the message of Jesus, a missionary, A purpose of winning souls to Christ, leading people to Jesus, explaining the gospel so that the Holy Spirit could save them. And in seven years, not a single convert. Not one. That would kind of make you think, maybe this is my idea and not God's. Maybe I just need to go home. Like the preacher, this young man was a... He worked for his dad out in the fields. The father was a farmer. And the boy looked up in the clouds one day. He got so excited, he ran to his father. Dad, dad, in the clouds. G-P-C. He says, what? What, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, the clouds. They spelled G-P-C. What does that mean? Go preach Christ. And the boy left his father and went off to preach Christ. Years later, after very unsuccessful ministry he quit and he came home and he looked at his dad and he said i think i got it wrong it wasn't go preach christ it was go plow corn (laughs) well that might be the case not everybody who thinks they're called is actually called but for william Carey, the first seven years were barren but if you travel to india today And you ask them, the founder, the father of the missionary work of God in India. They will say William Carey. The souls that came to Christ. Not because of him, but because he joined God in a work that for seven years didn't produce. By the way, Jeremiah never saw people repent. The great prophet Jeremiah never saw it. His whole ministry. They rejected his message that God gave him. So you can actually experience things that are not good and it still be God. But generally speaking, if God is in it, he will bless the work at some point. And he will bless and sustain the giver of the work, the one who is being faithful to be a tool in his hand. So how do we know that God is in this work that Nehemiah is about to do? We'll look at verse 8, chapter 2. And the king granted me what I asked. Look at this. For the good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah is quick to give God all the glory for the success he had in speaking with the king. At this point, Nehemiah clearly recognizes it as God who's guiding him. And verse 11 says, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night and I I and a few men with me. And I told no one, look at this now, what my God put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. Whose plan is it to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? A lot of times I've heard preachers actually use this text to preach about leadership and how men are the ones that need great vision in order to do great things for God. Uh, They seem to forget the passage that says, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's plan prevails. They'll quote over and over, if my people, which are called by my name, Will humble them, and they'll also go to the passage in the Old Testament about uh, the reason people perish is for lack of vision. You are the leader, you need to come up with a great vision. Wrong. That passage actually means where the people have not received revelation from God, they perish. And the reason they don't have revelation from God is because preachers aren't being faithful to seek God to get that revelation and that's exactly what we have here we've got nehemiah who's saying no it's not my work it's the lord's work i have sought the lord and the lord has opened my eyes to see what he wants to do and i'm going to do it what my god had put into my heart to do for jerusalem so whose project is this it's god's project after evaluating the damage on the wall and the gates and the secret of the night The next day, Nehemiah gathers together with the nobles and the city leaders of Jerusalem, and he gives them the report. Verse 17, look, if you will. Then I asked them, or said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned? Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. We may no longer be scoffed at. We may no longer be mocked by those who live outside the walls. Let's rebuild the walls. But that's not where he stops. He lets the leaders know why this project is worthy of their time and their commitment. He says, and I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise and build. So they strengthened their hands for the work of God. For the good work that God had given them to do. So the leaders were very quick to respond and commit when they knew that it was god's plan for us to move into a new facility i want to say to you this morning that after many years five years of prayer and hard work our our future facility team our finance team elders myself we've been working hard to try and find the location where god might move us and for five years the lord said no 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 and then all of a sudden, God opens the door wide and swings it open, and begins things begin to fall into place, so much so that the seller, uh, who's a friend, Rick Wiles, said, Greg, I went and prayed, for a week I fasted, and in that time of prayer, God clearly told me that he's going to be directing our ministry a certain way, it is time for us to sell this property, and they never put it on the market, they reached out to us alone and said, we'd like to sell it to you. That is the hand of God, amen? And God has been moving ever since, and we're excited about the future of our church because God's project. When it's God's project, folks, listen, it doesn't mean there won't be opposition. It simply means that God's going to fulfill what God's doing. I want you to look at verse 19 because here, this good news, what's the good news? The good news is that all the leaders of Jerusalem are saying, yeah, we're with you, let's go and build. The very next sentence, verse 19, But when at the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, What is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So when we commit to do the Lord's work, church, that does not mean that trouble will not follow us. Jesus made it pretty clear that in this world you're going to have great tribulation. But be of good cheer. Take heart because I've overcome this world. And when we're about to do something that God is in, and and it's for the glory of God, we don't want a property just so we can sit back and be fat and happy. We want a property whereby we can build, establish like a lighthouse that will beam out across this county and region with the gospel of Jesus Christ and opportunities to reach people for Christ and draw them to God. That is a purpose. That is a grand purpose. That is a God sized purpose. That's not our idea. That's not our vision. That's what God's doing. God is in this. And don't think for a second that the enemy doesn't hate it. Satan will do whatever he can to try to disrupt, to thwart the work of God. And that's what they're doing here. So joining God does not mean it's going to be easy. Let me tell you what it means when you join God. It's worth it. I've never heard a person yet who's truly joined a God project, whether it be in their own home, in their personal life, or whether it be in a church or whatever. If they've ever joined something that God is truly doing, I've never heard a person say, man, I regret that. That was the worst decision I could have ever made. Never. Was it easy? No, it was not. But boy, did I grow during those years as we join God in his work. Incredible growth. in my, How many of you are ready to grow in the Lord? Amen? Well, A lot more of you need to get ready. Because I'm telling you right now, if we join God, that's, what it's, that's what's required of us. To allow God to look within us and begin doing a work in us. Changing our, 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 our idea of what faith in him is and strengthening our faith in him. Nehemiah said to the opposition, verse 20, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and his servants will arise and build, but you, these three men who were from the area, but they are not Jewish, he said, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. We're going to do this great work for God, but you're not part of it. These guys wanted to be on the inside where they could stir up and keep division among the people. And Nehemiah said, "Uh uh-uh. So what did he do? He exposes the enemy in the very beginning, before they even start the project. He wants the people to know, here's our enemy right here. And he looks right at them. It's not like he's doing behind their back. He he looks right at them. Uh, This is not your work because you're not Jewish. You don't believe in the same God. So that's a subtle way of letting everybody know, watch out for these guys. Now, this is a period in history when God is trying to show the world who he is through the Jewish nation. That's why there was no intermarriage. Today, that's not an issue because we're all part of God's family. Amen? So it's a whole different day today. Thank thank God for that. His grace and his mercy to allow us Gentiles to be part of, grafted into his family. Amen. But back then, he was still working solely through the Jews. So, it is at this time that we need to recognize that the greatest work being done in Jerusalem by Nehemiah and the people is not the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem. The greatest work being done is the rebuilding of the people's faith in God. And God is going to use opposition to sharpen them to believe in him. I wish I could somehow describe for you, but maybe the best way to do it is to have you simply look in your own life, and look at the things that right now just aren't flowing in the direction you want them to go. Things that seem to be a disturbance, things that seem to be a a distraction, things that are a setback in your life. And I want to say to you that oftentimes God causes the disturbance. Not just allows it, many times he causes it. But even if he didn't cause it, he allows it for one purpose, to do a work in you. What would we be like as Christians if, never, if, we, if we never faced any trials? If life was just easy sailing, you know, just smooth, man, everything's good. I, I, I'm a Christian, and man, now life is so easy. Do you see... The Christian life being easy for our brothers and sisters in other nations right now. And, it, and just about every other nation in the world, Christians are greatly persecuted. But it's refining their faith, it's strengthening their resolve to stand for God. The problem in North America is we don't have to stand because there's no persecution, and we don't stand. And we stay very weak in our faith. We're anemic. We have no power because we don't need it. And God is saying, in your life and in the things that you do for my work through my people, I'm going to make sure that there's times of great struggle for you because I love you. And I chasten those whom I love. I'm doing a work in you. I want want you to be different next year from what you are right now. That is God's plan for you. The quicker you embrace that, the quicker you can get on with God's work and enjoy what the Christian life is truly about. It's about God. It's about God's plans on the earth, not mine. There's a real push today in Christian circles That it's about you having more and you getting this and you getting that. And man, it's all about you and your health and your wealth and your whatever. It really isn't. That doesn't line up with, you can take scripture, you can cherry cherry pick scriptures in the Old Testament to make that sound good. But that's not the overall counsel of God. God's counsel is that I'm going to do a work in you. And it's going to cost you something. But I love you and you're going to be better for it, and the kingdom will be better for it, and my name will be great. See, what God wants from us more than anything is to bring glory to him. Amen? Verse 1 of chapter 4, and chapter 3, by the way, is simply recording all the Jews who got busy on the wall. It shows what part of the wall they worked on. It gives the name of the, of the family. And it just shows this incredible unity that they're working together. They've joined arms in the work of God. And they're moving forward. They're bringing gr- glory to God by working together on the wall. And then you come to chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Sambalet heard that we were building the wall, he was angry. And greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews, and he said in, this, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? We know who they are. They can't do this. They're feeble. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice again on the top of the temple mount? Will they finish up this project in a day? He's joking. He's laughing. He doesn't think any of that's going to happen. Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Are these people nuts? In verse 3, Tobiah gets in on it. He said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, it uh, it will break down their stone wall. A fox climbing on the rocks will break the wall down. Here's what I want to say about this. Satan will not stand by and allow God's people to do God's work without trying to dismantle it. How does he try to dismantle it? Well, right here in our text. Number one, through ridicule. They ridiculed the work being done for God. They'll do anything to deride what God is doing. In verse 19 of chapter 2. But when Sambalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard it, they jeered at us and despised us. And then in chapter four, verse two, what are these feeble Jews doing? And he nails them again. They, they're just kind of being critical of everything that the Jews are doing. They're ridiculing, they're mocking. It's derision. So that's the first form of opposition that you're going to face. As we take on this project, believe me, we'll get some of that. It'll happen. It just will. Because Satan's always at work. And his schemes never change. He's not a, hey listen, he's not God. Satan cannot create. He doesn't have that capacity. He's a created being of God. All he can do is take what God has done and try to manipulate and pervert it. And so here he's trying to bring opposition to the work of God. He's belittling the work. He's criticizing the project through these men. He's trying to bring the work of God down to size. It's not a great work. It's a simple work, and they can't even do that. Someone once said, people are always down on whatever they're not up on. How true that is. It's easy to despise what you cannot get. They are not Jews, these, these, these in opposition. They don't have the history and the tradition of the Jews. They're not called to this project. God has not invited them to join him. God never made a covenant with them. So when you can't, when you can't participate, what do you do? Then you criticize it. It reminds me of, of Aesop's fable fable of the fox and the grapes this fox sees this clump of grapes hanging from a branch a vine but it's up high and he jumps up and he can't reach it he steps back and runs and jumps he still can't reach it and he tries over and over and over and he's finally just tuckered out wore out he sits down on the path right below the grapes and he's thinking through it and he says stupid old grapes they're probably sour anyway You can't have them, so you criticize them. That's the first level of opposition. It's ridicule and mockery. How are we to respond as we go about doing God's great work? What's the response to these men and their words of mockery? Look at verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you. See, look at this in the prayer. It's not us. It looks like they're they're mocking us. They're criticizing, but they're not. They're criticizing you, Lord. Don't take personal when people criticize you. If you're standing for truth and righteousness, and somebody comes along and starts making fun of you for it, they're really making fun of God not you. It says, so we built, verse 6, so we built the wall. That's their response. How do we handle people that are negative? I just keep building. The dog barks, but the train rolls on. Praise God. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. The second thing that the enemy will do through these people is he'll use intimidation. Look at verse 7. But when Samblet and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the wall of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Now they're not thinking it's a small job, right? They're not making fun of it as much. Now they're angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So they moved from criticizing the seriousness of the project to threatening to fight the Jews in Jerusalem to try to cause confusion among God's people. So how do other people respond to that threat? Verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a, protective, a protection against them day and night. Again, when the enemy speaks, when the enemy tries to do something, what's our response? Pray. Pray. This isn't our project. We ought to have confidence when we Pray. Now, if we're trying to get God to join us in what we're doing, I wouldn't have as much confidence praying to God to help us. But if I know that this is God's project and the enemy makes, shows his ugly face in some way, I'm just going to pray and say, Lord, you got a problem here. It's your problem. How do you want to handle it? And the Lord says, ah, put some people on the wall with some weapons. Keep them out. And that's what they did. Number three, let me give you another, another thing that happens from opposition. Opposition, if it can't win from the outside, the enemy will try to plant opposition on the inside. In Judah, it says in verse 10, it was said in Judah, this is the people, the, God's people are saying, the strength of those who bear the burden is failing. People are getting weary as they try to do this great work. There is too much rubble. That's the problem. They're getting weary. Why? Because everywhere they look, there's rubble from the old wall that's been broken down, and they just can't seem to make any progress. They're they're weary. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. This is happening within. Now, negative, negative thoughts, criticism from within. Believe me, that'll happen here too. People who just can't seem to keep the focus on what God's doing And all of a sudden, they start looking at the things that they just, "Ah, I I just don't think we can do this. I just don't see how it's possible. So look at verse 11. Because verse 10 might mark the lowest point in the spirit of those who are doing the work. And the enemy on top of it is trying to plan to raid them. Verse 11. And our enemy said they will not... Know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time the Jews who lived near came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So here here's the good news in that. The good news is that the Jews who were working on the wall were informed by the Jews who lived outside the wall of what the enemy was trying to do. They're going to come and fight you at the point at the at the weakest breaches in the wall. So now they're aware. God has made the Jews aware that the enemy wants to try to overtake them. But the bad news is they're saying, so leave the wall and come home. But see, this is God's project, and God's in it. And so Nehemiah called the people, don't leave. Let's get to work. We just now know what the enemy's trying to do. And so look what happens. This is really good. Verse 13, so in the lowest part of the space behind the wall... In open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, their bows. That's smart, man. Put the people where closest to where they live, and let them defend that region of the wall. And I looked and rose and said to the nobles and the officials to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your and your homes, which is what Israel's doing right now as they get ready to do a land invasion into Gaza. They're going to fight. They're going to defend. They're going to make sure that this enemy doesn't have an opportunity in the future to do what they're doing. And that's what he's telling them. Look, let's not leave. Let's stay. But let's be ready to fight. So with one hand, you've got your trowel putting up cement on the wall. And in your other hand, you've got your sword. And let's go at it. Let's make it happen. And that's what the people do. They, they come together. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. There it is again. Look, look at this. God's the one who frustrated the enemy's plan to fight them where they didn't see them coming. Because God let them know they were coming. And when the enemy saw that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. But, but I love what Nehemiah had said to the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, sisters, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. God is too big for this. Don't let the enemy scare you. You've got a God that can handle the enemy. Amen? So what is the takeaway of this teaching today as we close? The takeaway is this, that God is providentially in control of all things over everything in our church and over everything in your personal life. Here's what we know about God's divine providence. God is sovereign over the entire universe. If he can handle the universe, I think he can handle you. Amen? Psalm 103 verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom, listen, rules over all, all galaxies, God rules. Let's go a little further here. Let, let, let's look at this because we're learning about the divine providence of God. God is sovereign over the physical world, not just the heavens. Matthew 5.45, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Everything that happens on the earth, God is sovereign over. Everything. Number three, God is sovereign over the affairs of nations. Right now, with the nations that are at war, with what's going on around the world. Listen, Psalm 66, 7. Who rules by his might forever? Whose eyes keep watch on the nations? God sees all that's happening. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. That would be a big mistake. But see, when you're rebelling against God, your pride allows you to exalt yourself. And God says, okay, there's your downfall. And God comes after them. Number four, God is even sovereign over human destiny. Galatians chapter 1, verse 15. But when he, when, this is Paul. But when he uh, who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, when did God call Paul? Before he was born. When did God know you? Before your mom and dad ever met. From the foundation of the world, God knows, has known you. He was pleased to reveal his son to me, Paul said, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anybody. Paul isn't going to go out and start some ministry out of his own head. Paul's like, I'm going to go spend some time with God because he's the one that called me. He's the one that gave me the giftings to do it. Now I want to hear what the message is really all about. And he learned the gospel inside and out before he started his ministry. It was all God. God is even sovereign over our successes and our failures. In Luke chapter 1, verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Nobody has a lot because they have done something. God's allowed them to have what they have. Yeah, but they're getting away with murder. How they got what they have is, is just tr- treachery. You don't think God knows that? You don't think God, in the end, will bring justice? He's sovereign over our successes and our failures. And then number six, God sovereignly place, uh, protects his people uh, from the enemy. Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That's the psalmist David saying, if I have any safety at all, if there's any peace at all, it's all God. Amen? What, what would happen if you started living your life like this? recognizing God's sovereignty over your life, recognizing that his providential hand is at work in your life and in those around you. Do you not think it would cause you to have greater strength, greater faith in God, and to walk in boldness instead of fear? How many decisions do you make out of fear? But when you know how great your God is, all of a sudden fear takes a back seat because God's in control. The providence of God stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by chance or by fate. It is through divine providence that God accomplishes his will. And that's really what this whole thing's about. God's will being performed to ensure that his purposes are fulfilled, God governs the affairs of men. You say, "Yeah, but what about human will? How does that fit into the providence of God?" Well, all I can do is turn to scripture. One great story would be the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. God allowed Joseph's brothers to kidnap Joseph, sell him as a slave, and then lie to their father for years about Joseph's fate. That's wicked. That was in their heart to do wickedness. And God was displeased by it. However, at the same time, All of their sin worked toward a greater good. Joseph ended up in Egypt where he was made the prime minister. Joseph used his position to sustain the people of Egypt and even a much broader region including his own family and provided food for them when they were in a famine. And when the brothers finally recognized that it was Joseph that they appealed to for help, the one that they had turned their back on and rejected. Out of fear, Joseph stopped them. Don't be afraid. What you meant for harm, God is going to use for good. That's where God uses even the will of man. It fits. Nothing will fit outside God's supernatural will and providence. Nothing. Nothing. That's not a license for us to go out and sin like the devil just so we, because we know, oh, God's going to cover it anyway. Uh, God will let you and your sin be destroyed. You go out and drink, get crazy, hit a tree, you'll die. So don't play around with God. There are natural laws that God has put in place on this earth, but they only are in place because God put them in place. He's still sovereign, even over the natural laws of this world. He's sovereign over you. He's sovereign over me. And when God moves, God wants his people to act like his people and move with him. And these people are doing it. And in 52 days, they complete this great work of God because God was in it and he led them to it. Amen? Next week, we're going to pick up around verse 16 there in chapter 4 and continue forward. I'd like for us to, to pray at this time. Father, thank you for this opportunity today. I pray that you would help each of us to understand that even the gospel of Jesus Christ was your plan. And you used man's sin in order to put us at a place where we recognize that we are lost without you. And understanding that opens the door for the good news and for the calling of God to receive us and save us from our sin. We thank you, Lord, that you're in all and through all, your will will be done. We give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church family, for being with us today. If you have any kind of a special need, please come forward. Our elders and prayer partners would be delighted to just pray with you, minister to you this morning at the close of our service. And for the rest of you, make sure that you love somebody before you leave. It's important that we be a fellowship, okay? God bless you.